0: I'm Stuart Chittenden and this is LIVES, a show about conversation, community, and the people that bring community to life. My guest today is Dr. Samantha Sender-Cook, a communications professor at Creighton University. Dr. Samantha Sender-Cook is an associate professor in the Department of Communication Studies and an affiliated faculty member with the environmental science and sustainability programs at Creighton University. She studies rhetorical theory and analyzes environmental communication and materiality in the context of social movements, outdoor recreation, and urban spaces and places. She was recently awarded a Fulbright Fellowship to study in Japan in 2019, and is an award-winning author and speaker. Her current research focuses on constructions of space and place in urban environments, specifically in Omaha, Nebraska, and tactical acts of resistance. When she is not researching, teaching, or volunteering, she can usually be found reading a mystery novel, trying out a new recipe, or riding the hills of Omaha on her bike. Samantha, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much for having me, Stuart.
0: So, your field of study is rhetorical theory and environmental communication and materiality in the context of social movements outdoor recreation, and urban spaces and places. Can you decipher that for
1: us, please? (laughs) I'm happy to. (laughs) Yeah, so I study communication, and communication is kind of a broad field. Within communication, there's a sub-discipline called rhetorical studies. So it's the study of rhetoric, like persuasion in public, basically. Um, Within that, I'm interested in environmental communication. So how... What we say about the natural world creates a perception of the natural world. So for me, it is especially interesting or important to consider how we talk about urban spaces as part of um, our understanding of the natural world. And I'm also interested in how ordinary people enact resistance to kind of dominant ways of being in terms of the environment so how can we engage in behaviors that are better for the environment um, and better for the people who live in that environment so i think some people maybe would consider a division within environmentalism between um, actions that would save say a wilderness area and protect it and uh, putting that up against environmental justice. So things in urban spaces that would affect people's health. I would say that those are really deeply connected. And the way that we treat the planet and animals on it, including us, (laughs) is also reflected in the ways that we treat different people in our society too.
0: When you talk about it like that, i think about how we talk about situations like the flint water crisis definitely and how we maybe talk about the vanishing environment of polar bears those are larger scale illustrations and there are probably very local neighborhood ones too are these are the kind of things that we you are talking about and if so what kind of illustration would you would you offer of what you're studying
1: sure yeah so those are two examples those are two examples that I don't study in particular, but that people in environmental communication would study. So I think um, to take your polar bear example, people have looked at how polar bears have been represented in news media and then how that creates a particular perception of climate change, for example. It's a way to sort of personalize something, a phenomenon that seems really big and difficult to capture. And so it makes it really specific. And then it, it evokes a lot of emotion for most people to see an animal dying, especially a nice, cute, big animal. Um, With Flint, Michigan, again, same kind of thing. That's a completely um, quintessential study of environmental justice or environmental injustice, rather, where we see, you know, a situation that is created by humans that is really negatively impacting the people in this city. And it's not just Flint. I mean, that's happening all over the United States. So, yes. So then from there, what are things that I study in Omaha? So I have done a little bit about the organization of space. So how do we create a space that reflects our values? In my neighborhood, I live in Gifford Park, and I am interested in how uh, people in Gifford Park talk about the past in the neighborhood, so the memories that they have. Of the neighborhood and then how that impacts current projects that they have. So their efforts to save the Yates Community Center or the creation of the Gifford Park Community Garden, the Community Bike Project. So those are the kinds of things that they have enacted in response to a particular way of seeing themselves in the past. And then also I think that has impact for the future. These things, the community bike project, the community garden, the diversity of the neighborhood, those are things that are very attractive to people and maybe white people more specifically and maybe white affluent people even more specifically right now. And so we have seen development projects coming in and there has been some anxiety about the price of houses in Gifford Park And so now people in the neighborhood are starting to think about um, what the possible future of the neighborhood will look like given these kinds of efforts that they were engaging in in the last, say, 10-ish years. So that would be a particular example that I'm thinking about.
0: So when I think of communication, I would imagine many people are thinking about text in some form, in some place, or speaking to people using verbal communication. Yeah. But I mean, imagine, given your examples around space, place, and and how these are constructed and how we interact with them and with other people there, that it it must be much more than that.
1: Yeah, thanks. That's a good clarifying question. (laughs) So I consider material space to be... Um, communicative, so something that can communicate in itself, and it seems like maybe a complicated idea, but I am sure that you have experienced it yourself. Um, there was one very clear example. Yeah, I feel I feel a little bit like I don't want to go off on a different tangent, but the example that's coming to my mind is at the Asian Rural Institute, where I was just doing field work, and so that's coming to mind. So I'm sorry to switch topics, but so at this um, organization I was at in Japan. It is a Christian organization, and they had a chapel on their campus. And they had the chapel arranged so that when you came in, the seats were sort of elevated. They had benches that were kind of stacked on top of each other. So the two back rows were the highest, and then they had benches on the floor. And then they had sort of a sunken down level where people could sit kind of in one row below the floor. And then the lowest point was where the speaker, whoever was leading, would sit or stand. And for them, that very clearly communicates a value of servant leadership. So to them, um, the person leading should be in service to the people who they're leading. That's a really clear example of where the space communicates or really clearly reinforces this particular value that they have.
0: One aspect of the neighborhood I live in that I like is that in the streets or beside the streets, parallel with them, are sidewalks that pedestrians can use. But in other parts of the city, there is no sidewalk, and therefore, you either walk in the street or you do not walk. Is that something for you that would have some communicative value?
1: Definitely. Yeah. And actually, so this is another Great example with the rise of the suburbs. A lot of suburban developments were built without sidewalks at all, and they were built so that the garage is kind of the front of the house. So the car really went from being, you know, an appendage or an extension of the person to being the primary focus of a house and a neighborhood. Um, yeah, and so you see that very clearly. And actually, in Omaha, <laughs> lots of times snow clearing. Just does the same thing functionally. So it makes it so that if you're walking somewhere, (laughs) you're still walking in the street.
0: seems to me that the whole of the physical world could be subject to your particular interest uh, and field of study. So how do you go about selecting those aspects of space, place, and how we interact with it or communicate through it to focus your studies on?
1: I would disagree a little bit. So uh, I would not say that the whole of physical space would be considered communicative, a natural thing. And this is where I think environmental communication is especially instructive to material rhetorical theory. All the time I'm making academic arguments like this. Um, So there is a thing that exists without human construction. So there are mountains that exist without human-made physical features. There are mountains that have been completely transformed through humans kind of to... uh, greater and lesser degree tinkering around with them, like making hiking trails versus, you know, mountaintop removal, coal mining. So you could look at those kinds of projects too. And in fact, I did a whole paper about hiking trails. (laughs) Um, But it's interesting. So the natural world itself, I think, creates this kind of interesting component when we're talking about materiality. So when we're thinking about something physical, like toxins, there's a truth to that that can't be denied. When you have a certain amount of toxin in the water or in the air that people are breathing or consuming, you can't talk your way out of that. And that signifies some other problem that's happening. Okay, so disagreement aside, um, you got to pick your project, right? Do I want to pick a project that is a really... Um, a, Uh, something that is going to challenge the boundaries of what my field considers to be communicative or rhetorical. Well, I have, I have picked projects like that because I did want to push boundaries and maybe push buttons. Right. So I have done that with the hiking trails, for example. And actually one of the things that's happening now in my field that I also am part of in some ways, is um, embodiment. So how the body itself, people's bodies, also are communicative. So there's that part too. Um, But sometimes the point is not to push a boundary, a rhetorical or academic boundary. Sometimes the point is to draw attention to what I would consider something like micro resistances. So I'm really interested and motivated by Instead of focusing on how, say, the coal industry is combating accusations against them that they're polluting the environment, so they're coming out with clean coal and this sort of thing, there have been very successful and very precise critiques of their rhetoric to draw out exactly how they're doing this. I don't want to spend my time with... Coal company rhetoric. <laughs> so instead, I pick a project that I would say is more uplifting for me, like what I would call micro resistances. So how in everyday life, we are engaging in practices that are better for ourselves and better for our neighborhoods, better for the environment as a whole, better for communities.
0: So, so your bio-reference is tactical acts of resistance. That's
1: right. Yeah. So a tactical action would be considered something that is sort of like on a small scale, as opposed to something strategic that, it, that has a central locus of power. So um, this is a theorist whose name is Michel Deserteau, and I like him. He has a book called The Practice of Everyday Life. And so he is also is coming up with this theory about micro resistances. Yeah, one of the dis- distinctions that he draws about power is between strategies which are uh, really kind of focused on, like I said, a centralized locus of power. So if you're a cool company, you've got a legal department and a PR department, and you probably have a world headquarters. If you're a neighborhood, you've got an ad hoc (laughs) kind of committee or even just sort of a rough group of community members that are coming together to pick up trash in the park. There's no one person who's going to be the spokesperson for the neighborhood until probably much later, you know, if you have a neighborhood association or something like that. But yeah, so I'm more interested in the second, second kind of power.
0: game to illustrate what tactical acts of resistance might look like.
1: So you're planting a garden, in your you're planting a vegetable garden in your front yard. Active resistance. You know, and they can definitely be playful. There's a really good example of an organization in, I think, San Francisco uh, who, they're called Rebar, and they started something called Parking Day, and so they looked up city laws and just found that this would be within the boundaries of the law. Um, So they decided to rent, I'm using air quotations here, rent a parking space by putting money in the meter in downtown San Francisco. And then instead of parking a car there, they made a park. So a little play on the word park. And so, yeah, so kind of using a space in a creative way to say, hey, public space. It's nice, right? (laughs) And so, you know, of course, they've got a police officer who comes up and says, yeah, no, sorry. And they say, well, no, I'm sorry, because here's city code and here's there's no restrictions. And so actually, there's been a lot of different cities that have done the same thing. And then parking day is the third third Friday in September every year now, I think, something like that. And we have we've had them in Omaha and different places. But they encourage you to not... Be um, like forceful. So not be a protester. They're saying, you're not protesting. This is an act of resistance, but it's sort of a friendly, playful one. So in the book that they kind of released, like it's more like a manual about how to do this. They're, one of the things they say is educate yourself about what the city laws are. And if you need a permit or something, then get it. But be an information source because it's something curious and inviting and... Uh, kind of cheerful. (laughs) And so it creates the opportunity for conversation. So be ready for that too.
0: Um,
1: The thing that I've been very interested in lately is community gardens. That's something that my attention keeps coming back to. So organic farming or small scale agriculture. And so that's actually what I went to Japan to study too. So in the United States, we've talked a lot about urban farms and how they can be really helpful for communities, um, really positive. I'm also curious about how this functions. So instead of like very local and in urban places, I'm interested in how this would look globally, internationally, and how it would look in rural areas. The place that I was at was called the Asian Rural Institute. And so they have people who live in rural areas from all over the world.
0: Let's transition. Let's sure. grab our passports, get on the plane, and go to Japan. All right, uh, with you. So you were recognized and awarded a Fulbright fellowship. Mm-hmm. Could you set the groundwork for us by telling us what a Fulbright fellowship is?
1: Yeah, a Fulbright. It, so it can be a lot of different things. I had a research grant. So mine was to support academic research. And so usually people get a Fulbright to be at an international university. And so usually it's to have access to a particular maybe library collection, you know, archives of some kind, or to use a particular piece of technology like a particle accelerator, something like that, or join a particular research team that's at this university. Um, I didn't know if I was allowed to or not. (laughs) So I just applied and saw what happened, but I was at a place where I did research. So I, I applied to be at a research site, which is a little bit of a different kind of thing. Um, I remember calling or sending an email asking, can I do this? And she said, well, I don't know. There's nothing that says you can't. And I was sort of like, well, I guess we'll see. (laughs) So, um, yeah, so I was at a research site. So I was at the Asian Rural Institute. So the Fulbright uh, paid my airfare over there, my return trip, gave me a housing stipend while I was there. It is a very generous scholarship, basically. And so a very generous grant. So thank you, Fulbright. (laughs) Just a little shout out. Um, And they're actually great. So the people who work in the Fulbright office in Tokyo set up programs for us, um, sort of enrichment programs so we could learn about Japanese culture and learn about kind of the relationship between US, the U.S. and Japan. So we went to, we had a kind of a field day where we went to like a big international bank, their headquarters in Tokyo, and we had a former Fulbrighter talk to us about the economic like the economics in the Asian Pacific area. And so the relationship between China, U.S., and Japan. And so that was interesting. And then we went to the U.S. Embassy, which was also very interesting. I mean, you want to talk about the place in Japan where I went through the most security of anything. It was the U.S. Embassy for sure. Um, But it was very interesting to hear the diplomats who are representing us in Japan and their perspectives about relationships and... Um, how to foster goodwill between two countries and what are, what are their strategies for doing that. So that was cool. And then we also got to meet with the former ambassador from Japan to the United States. And so he sat down and talked to us about perspectives, his perspectives on foreign policy. And so just very, very cool. Just It seemed like a total privilege to be able to hear these perspectives and to have this set up for us. And I was very grateful for it.
0: So it was a three-month fellowship, I think.
1: It was five months.
0: With the fellowship, what did you apply to do and what was the focus of your research?
1: Yeah. The short answer is I was interested in how sustainable agriculture can be a means of empowerment for community members. So why sustainable agriculture? Why does growing food create community? I mean, there's a very clear relationship between being able to feed yourself and having power. So when you can feed yourself you can then move on to make other decisions for your community. You don't have to occupy all of your time with thinking about where your next meal is coming from. But also, why is it important for a community? What does it do socially? Or what does it do politically for a community to grow food together? What does it mean to do it organically? Why is that better than chemical? So these are some of the questions that I had. This is some of the some of the things that I was interested in. What does food do functionally? How does it communicate itself?
0: How did you explore them?
1: I engage in what's called participant observation. It's what it sounds like. <laughs> so I'm participating in activities, um, but I'm also observing as I'm doing that. And I'm taking field notes. Lots of times, you know, I was there picking weeds and feeding chickens and using a pitchfork and, oh my gosh, all kinds of things. <laughs> but then I would also carry around my phone with me everywhere and take pictures of things that we were doing and uh, taking lots of notes. So I had little notebooks that I was taking notes in. So that's participant observation. And I would type field notes up from that and sort of expand from whatever I was you know, jotting down while I was in the field. Uh, And then I also did interviews. So while I was there, I did over 40 interviews with different staff, volunteers, and participants at the ARI. Yeah, so that's my method, you know, that's my way of collecting data. So what I'll do is I've got now field notes and transcripts from interviews, and I'll go through and code those to find themes that emerge. Um, But my thinking about this. I mean, I started out with questions about sustainable agriculture in international context and empowerment, rural communities. But I also am got to think about lots of other kinds of issues. Like one that kept coming up for me that I have not done any real reading in is decolonization or colonialism or neocolonialism. So all of those things. Those are complicated kinds of issues and they are certainly going on in the international nonprofit communities yeah so i'm just interested to sort of pull that out so that was one thing that i didn't completely mm, i didn't say i'm not i'm not going to find anything about decolonization here but i hadn't it wasn't really on my radar so that was one way that my thinking kind of evolved about it yeah
0: communication, you don't speak Japanese. Oh,
1: yeah. <laughs> that was another barrier to applying for a Fulbright. There's a language requirement. <laughs> so,
0: how, so how did that work? You're there and you're trying to take field notes and I, I can see the observatory part of this, Yeah. but interviews and trying to talk with people and react in the moment to gather information. How did you do that when language is such an important All of this,
1: yeah. The ARI is an English-speaking institution, so English is their lingua franca. So they have people from all over the world, um, like Germany, United States, Japan, obviously, uh, but also from Ghana and Cameroon and Micronesia and the Philippines and India. Uh, You know, so you need to have a way to communicate, and so they have made the decision for their community that English is the lingua franca now. There is something that they call ARI English (laughs) because it involves Japanese phrases and it involves, you know, strange language structure and an understanding that you will speak more slowly and clearly. If you are a person who speaks very quickly like me or, you know, sometimes I am making trying to make direct eye contact with a person so that I can understand what's happening. But you actually get a lot done just by like. The context and motioning to something and using gestures, uh, you know, things can go wrong too. but <laughs> and sometimes it's tricky. Like some words are tricky. Things that sound the same are um sometimes a challenge. So one person uh, was talking about how she kept getting chicken in kitchen. Mixed up, which totally makes sense because these are words that sound essentially the same, but mean different things and actually are different places on campus. So somebody would say, what are you doing here? You're supposed to be in the kitchen. And she would say, I am in the kitchen. And they're like, you are in chicken. Like you're up here in the chicken coop, you know, (laughs) just like so frustrating, I'm sure. Um, But yeah, so and then the challenge for me is just speaking slowly because I want to speak fast all the time. <laughs> but yeah, so that's how we got it done. Over the winter before participants came, so participants are, there's like 25 people that come from all non-Japanese countries. So before they come, it's really volunteers and staff. And most of the staff are from Japan and a smaller portion of them are from United States. And then some are from um, other places like India and Ghana and the Philippines. But... There was much more Japanese spoken over the winter before participants come. And so sometimes I'm just sort of watching, trying to figure out what's happening. And I would get a sense of things that were going on. And sometimes I would just ask, you know, Imananji Desuka. Oh, no, sorry. That's what time is it? Uh, (laughs) What is it? Um, No, I'm forgetting now. It was there. So like a month ago and now it's not. But yeah, so I would say, "What what does this mean? You know? What's this thing that you're saying? What does that mean? And they would say, oh, okay. Well, it's this. And they would explain it to me in English. And so I learned some more phrases that, like I was telling you before we came in, some of the phrases everybody just gets to know. Hi is yes. If somebody calls your name, Stuart San, Hi, You know, so that's what you would say all the time. Dajabudes, which means it's okay. It's all right. Don't worry about it. I would say, kiyotskote kudasai. I worked on the farm. They're always doing things like, using chainsaws and climbing ladders that look like nobody should climb them and, you know, say. Yeah, so we would have, we I, there were certain stock phrases that are embedded in my mind and other things clearly I've forgotten.
0: <laughs> so not holding you as an academic yeah. to what you're about to say, but what do you feel like you've learned?
1: No coding, just sort of initial impressions is where I'm at. Um, so some of my research questions were about embodiment, So how does a daily action create an ideology? So let me just talk through this idea. If we think about an ideology as values, kind of commitments or tenets to particular ideas, there are ways to support that through your language. You can write op-eds, you can make speeches. You know, we've seen lots of politicians doing that. But again, I'm interested in ordinary kind of everyday actions. So I am interested in how what somebody does on a daily basis is an enactment of ideology. If we start there, then we might ask, what is it about feeding animals and weeding plants and making organic fertilizer that becomes part of the ideology So one of my theories, one of my ideas is that ARI is is successful in part because it creates an expectation that everybody who is there participates in what they call food life work. This is illustrating two things. One is the equality between people there. Nobody is really excused from food life work unless they are taking a pay cut, or they're a commuting volunteer, so they're not living on campus. Basically, if you live on campus there, the expectation is that you participate in food life work, which means in the morning, you are either taking care of chickens, pigs, or goats, or you are in crops and vegetables, and you're harvesting or weeding or repotting things or doing whatever the farm needs. So it's really deeply embedding the relationship between food and life and labor to a large degree. So there's a really really impactful way of considering this relationship when you are doing it yourself through embodiment, when you're enacting these over and over again on a daily basis. And then the equality piece, like I started to say and then got off track, was that everybody does this. And so many people in my interviews mentioned the director and how she washes dishes alongside everyone else. She's out there at six thirty in the morning, picking weeds and digging—you know, whatever we need dug. <laughs> I maybe should also make a distinction. So there's sort of three categories of people at the ARI: there's staff, volunteers, and participants. Staff are people who are paid uh, to work there, and they have part-time and full-time, um, and they're there year-round. And volunteers usually make usually about a year commitment, but there's different levels. Sometimes it's only a few months, and one, you know, a couple people will make like a two-year commitment. Uh, and volunteers are typically sent by what's called a sending body who pays for their housing and their food mm-hmm. to the farm. So ARI is sort of paid for the volunteers, and then the volunteers work for a small stipend. Mm-hmm. And then participants are there to learn. So they are uh, selected Usually from countries that have been historically marginalized or countries that have been really negatively impacted by things like colonization or civil war or environmental problems. And they are somebody else pays for them to come. So ARI does a lot of fundraising to make sure that they can come and learn three things. Sustainable agriculture, servant leadership, like I mentioned before, and then community building and then be leaders. So after their nine-month program, they go back to their home community. So lots of participants in interviews would say, you know, when I was, when they were telling me I was coming here, they said, you know, everybody works, everybody is expected to come and wash dishes and do whatever. And uh, they said, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> they didn't 100% believe it, but they talked about how meaningful it was for them to see the director taking their plates after lunch and washing them. Yeah, so there's a kind of equality in that work. And it creates some really good interactions and it creates some really complicated problems for them too. This flattened hierarchy that they have. That was an interesting component there as well.
0: Tell me about some of your own personal experiences, some surprises, maybe some highs and lows.
1: Ah, oh, sure. Let's see. <laughs> highs and lows come easy. I'm thinking about a low, maybe like two and a half months in, the honeymoon is over. <laughs> I'm waking up every day, going to work at 6.30 in the morning taking care of chickens, putting a pitchfork through my boot, which also happened. You know, so it's cold. Japan doesn't have central heating. Most of Japan, most Japanese buildings, if you're not a tourist, won't have central heating. in them. If you're a tourist, you're staying in a hotel and they've got it. If you're living in Hokkaido, the northernmost island, they've got it. But most other places don't. Almost everywhere is heated through kerosene space heaters. So... This was very challenging for me. It's not as cold as Omaha. In fact, much warmer than Omaha. <laughs> so never that cold while I was there. But certainly below freezing, we had snow. But I was just never totally warm. Unless I was in bed, which man, that really makes us so you don't want to go to work at 630 in the morning. <laughs> All right. So one night. So kerosene space heaters. You've got to go outside and fill them up from a kerosene jug. And... The AI is the kind of place that makes it difficult to sort of get one answer for something. I had run out of kerosene and I needed to get my jug refilled. And I didn't know who to pay or where to go to do this. And it's like a five-gallon jug. And I just live very close, maybe like, maybe not even a quarter of a mile down the road from the farm. But that's far to carry a five-gallon jug. So then how do I get it down to my place? So I don't know these things. So I'm trying to ask people and I don't get an answer. And I have to just like count on running into the right person. And then they tell me when I remember and I'm with the right person and I ask and they say, oh, you need to talk to this other person. Okay. So this is where I am. So two weeks later, I still don't have any more kerosene and I know I'm going to run out and I haven't like my jug is out, but the kerosene space heaters in my place still have kerosene. So it's raining. It's dark. I'm typing field notes. My fingers are cold. I've got a space heater like two feet from me, (laughs) and my kerosene runs out. Okay, so now what do I do? So I've got another broken space heater in my place, and I know that that tank still has kerosene in it. Okay, so I can just take the kerosene out of there and put it in this other space heater that works. So I'm in my pajamas. I'm in rain boots. I'm in my driveway in a raincoat, and I've got the pump. But the pump doesn't fit in to the other tank because the opening isn't big enough. And then the two openings are the exact same size. So you can't really easily pour one into the other. So now I am also spilling kerosene all over the place, all over the driveway. And my neighbor comes (laughs) and I'm like, man, I just do not. I don't want to talk to anybody or have anybody see me like this. And so, yep. So this was, I was very frustrated, but mm. my neighbor is very nice. And he was asking, oh, Samson, do you know how to use the pump? Ah, yes, I do know how to use the pump. Thank you. And he's carrying all these papers, getting ready for a meeting. And he's like, I can just put these down and do this for you. And I was like, no, don't, it's raining. Just go to your meeting. It's fine. And he said, well, okay. I'll go to my meeting, but I can help you when I get back. I said, if I'm still in the driveway, then you can help me when you come back. And then I was like, I have to get done with this right now <laughs> because I do not want to be helped with this. I just want to get it over with and get back inside. So spilled kerosene all over the place and then went back inside and washed my hands and ugh. But that was so frustrating. And so people would ask me, like, what was the biggest culture shock? And I'm like, why is there no central heat? This is the country that invented the bullet train. You have solved train travel which lots of other places cannot handle. But no no central heat, this is working for you, this kerosene situation. <laughs> so I was very upset about that. Clearly everybody else is fine with it. <laughs> so I had some ethnocentrism going on there, <laughs> thinking my way was better. So that was probably a low point, point. one that I can laugh about now, but at the time I was really storming all around and being very angry. <laughs> um, a high point was very much towards the end. When I came back, I had to leave part of the way through to go to Vancouver for a conference. And I came back and I was going to try to get the like a late bus back up to this more rural area where I was living. Like get a bus, then connect to a train. But I wasn't sure when the last one left. So I thought, well, I'll just get a hotel. So I got a hotel. I got a, stayed in a capsule hotel in the airport. You know, I just... Got in late and was feeling all discombobulated and picked up my luggage and checked in and then went to sleep in this capsule hotel, which was kind of a cool experience anyway. It's an interesting thing. Uh, And then I got up in the morning, took a shower, came out. And then, man, I felt well rested. Went right up to that bus counter, spoke to them in Japanese, got my bus ticket, just asked them when the next one was leaving asked them where the train, the track was, got directed to them. I didn't completely know what I was doing here. Like I had never gotten the bus from the airport to this other train station and then transferred to the next train to get up to the city where I was staying, in Obara. But I just felt super competent. <laughs> like, man, I can just do this. After living here for, I think at that point, it was probably maybe four months or four and a half months, something like that. Uh, the Japanese was in my brain still, as it has not now. It's now. <laughs> So soon after. But yeah, so it was just, I felt very sure of myself and felt like I could fit in here. So I could see that. So when I got back from there, I kind of felt like, man, right when I'm leaving, I feel really good. <laughs> I can be totally independent and do these things that made me really nervous when I first got there. Like I would have to work out my sentence in advance of going up to the ticket counter. Like, oh, and what's the word for this and looking things up and and this time I didn't I was like I'm not even looking at my book. I'm just going right up and talking to them and figuring this out and paying and going. It was like great. <laughs>
0: miss most about your time in Japan? Hmm.
1: I really like, there's a conscientiousness that is uh, part of the expectation of Japanese culture. So you are expected to be concerned for other people. (laughs) Um, You are expected to, if you open a candy bar and eat it, you take that wrapper home with you. There's no public trash cans. If you're smoking a cigarette, you look around you, make sure you're not putting a child's eye out with This lit cigarette you're holding in your hand. So, uh, yeah, the United States, it's not a filthy place. But when I look around and I see, you know, gum on the sidewalk, there's just no gum on Japanese sidewalks because that's rude to other people. Why would you do that? So that's that's a thing that I miss. I, I like that part of it. That has a flip side. It's controlling. So I feel much freer in the United States. So like I'm wearing a tank top right now. This is not not really okay in Japan. People wear long sleeves all the time. And at ARI, they had a dress code. And so I would be violating the dress code right now. So I feel freer here.
0: How are you changed as a result of your studies generally?
1: I don't know that I changed that much because I was pretty on board with the mission. I I have a deeper knowledge of... Kind of previous ideological commitments that I made in the past. So I feel pretty committed to buying organic food. After engaging in the labor to produce that food, I feel like that commitment has been reinforced. So I don't know that I feel like I changed a whole lot in that way. Um, I mean, I think I just developed practices while I was there that I've sort of changed back since I've come back to the United States. So I normally speak loud and quick. (laughs) And while I was in Japan, I definitely just practiced speaking more softly, um, just anywhere in public, and then also, you know, speaking more slowly at ARI, trying to, although I failed often at that, but I have definitely just reverted right back to speaking fast and loud. (laughs) My American ways are coming back through.
0: (laughs) And maybe this is a challenging question, but I want it to be an opportunity for you to assert value, yeah, and that is, in what way is your work enhancing the world and our communities and our lived experience?
1: Yeah, that's a great question, and actually one that I have been an advocate for in my discipline, I am I think there are a couple different different ways to answer the question. For me, it is important to share my findings with people who are interested. It is important for me to be able to talk about my research in ways that non-rhetoricians can understand, people who haven't spent 10 years studying (laughs) rhetoric. So translation. So we might call it translational scholarship. That is important to me, and that's an important part of my work. That is also something that is gaining more traction in my discipline more widely, And something that I have challenged other scholars on at academic conferences. So I feel like I advocate for it in those ways. Other scholars, you know, do this in different ways. So some feel like writing op-eds is the way that they want to make this happen. Or writing white papers. I like just on-the-ground volunteering. And so in some ways, I need no special knowledge to do this. It's just showing up and doing what work needs to be done. I like that part of it. There are other scholars who think that their research itself is a form of resistance or a form of um, social criticism that can affect change. I don't subscribe to that because it has such a limited audience. So I am more interested in like the on-the-ground kind of ways of enacting change. I'm more interested in doing the micro-resistances alongside people um, and trying to live my life in those ways too. So in some ways, I kind of do the scholarship and then I also do these other things. I think my ideas can be helpful for communities to provide a reflection point, but I also recognize that there's limitations to that too. And sometimes it's just about standing in solidarity or standing in the background and Doing whatever somebody tells me to do that they need to have happen.
0: I've been in conversation with Dr. Samantha Sender-Cook, communications professor at Creighton University. Samantha, thank you for being on the show.
1: I really appreciate the opportunity to come on. Thank you so much, Stuart. The soy milk taste test.
0: Yes. (laughs) Yeah.
1: There were two tea. So one was Earl Grey, one was green tea. They were nicer than you might think. They were good. The one that was bad was sake-flavored. That was sort of like, yeah, I just don't understand why ruin two perfectly fine drinks by putting them together. It tasted like like a creamy sort of sour thing that made me think of vomit. (laughs)
0: That's the end of this week's show. The magnificent Marion Fay helped produce the show. Lives is an executive production of Squish Talks. I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week for more community, conversation, and the people that bring community to life.